Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 37. Circling back to the last episode, I covered Akhenaten and his little-understood successor, Sminker, both of whom ruled Egypt in parts of Canaan while the Israelites were settling, following their 40 years of wandering, at least according to the most agreed-upon Exodus timeline. The next most popular date for the Exodus would have the Israelites still in slavery in Egypt, so either way, those two rulers certainly impacted the history found in Exodus and the books that followed. The same holds true for the two pharaohs I'll cover this week, namely nerfurfur Ienen and Tutankhamun. And remember, the Akhenaten attempted to change the fundamentals of Egyptian religion, but with his death, the Aten cult he had founded slowly fell apart. So keeping that in the background, let's get started. Tzminkert was probably succeeded by nerfur Ienen, and I'll get to the reason for the qualifier in a minute. Archaeological evidence seems to indicate that Egypt was ruled by a woman pharaoh towards the end of the Armana period, which was during the 18th dynasty, and the general theory is that this was Akhenaten's royal wife, Queen Nefertiti. Overall, the period from about Akhenaten's 13th year until King Tut is not a well-understood period, this includes the last three years of Akhenaten, the year or so of Sminkur, and the two or so years of nerfurfur Ienen, so about six years in total. And the reasons for this are essentially twofold. First, the capital of the short period was Akhenaten, a city that was abandoned shortly after Akhenaten's reign. Next, as the years wore on after his death, and due to his not-so-successful attempt to change the religion, when the Egyptians reverted to their prior religious practices, they attempted to literally erase the period from their history. And with that, the records of these two short-lived pharaohs simply were lost. As for the slow religious shift, there are signs it began with his immediate successor, as this ruler is believed to have taken a less harsh stance towards competing deities. Even the ancient historian Manetho leaves us sitting here, some three millennia later, trying to piece it all back together. One of the more interesting theories that makes some sense, too, is that first Sminkur and then Neferfer-Ienenen served as a regent for the future King Tut when he was a child, and this could mean that the two named co-regents were actually the same person, or not. And when you align this theory with the evidence I covered in the last episode, was that medical testing done on their mummies showed that Akhenaten and Tut were most likely related as father and son. And with that, a co-regent would make sense. And Nefertiti as the regent, since she was Akhenaten's royal wife, would make sense too. But, in the end, there's no conclusive proof of any of this, just unsubstantiated logic. In Tut's tomb were a number of items that seemed to have been intended for a female, and judging by the sheer quantity and quality of these pieces, they would indicate someone in high authority. This included a gold piece depicting the goddess Nut, a stone sarcophagus, mummy wrappings, royal figurines, bracelets, and shapti figures. Even Tut's famous gold funerary mask may have been originally intended for Neferfer-Ienen, 
since her royal name was found partially erased on the mask. There are a handful of inscriptions that can be interpreted as referring to this pharaoh, but like all interpretations, they are subject to interpretation, and therefore these may not, in fact, refer to what some think they refer to. In other words, we just don't know, and we may never know for certain. Now we do know that whoever he or she was, and let's just go with she, she was probably entombed in Thebes, not Akhenaten, which signals a shift back towards the old religious ways. Until recently, and by recently, I mean the late 20th century, the accepted view was that the pharaoh Sminker served as co-regent with Akhenaten beginning about year 15 of the latter's reign. After Akhenaten's death, this ruler changed his name to Akim Perur Nefer Inanin, and changing a name at that point in history would not have been unusual. After all, Akhenaten didn't start out with that name. An alternate theory was also widely accepted, and that was that Nefertiti was King Nefernferienin, merely masquerading as a male, and using the name Sminker. This all changed in 1970, when English Egyptologist John Harris, a professor at the University of Copenhagen, noted that inscriptions seemed to indicate that the leader was female. Other artifacts pointed in the same direction, including a statuette found in Tut's tomb, which depicted a king whose appearance was particularly feminine, even for the period which seems to favor androgyny. There are several stele that depicted a king along with someone else, and that unknown person was frequently wearing a king's crown. The scenes were in some cases rather intimate. Adding to the mystery is that all of them were unfinished or uninscribed, and many had been defaced. At this point, the English Egyptologist Flinders Petrie makes yet another appearance. He uncovered seven limestone fragments of a private stele, sometimes referred to as the co-regency stele. It seems to indicate a female co-regent, but there also may have been two consecutive rulers who used the same name on the throne. To me, though, this seems unlikely. And there's a great deal more to the debate concerning the two short-lived rulers that follow Akhenaten, most concerning how their names were inscribed on various pieces, and if they were male or female, and one or two separate people. But it's time to move on, at least from Sminker. By the late 20th century, there was a general agreement that Neferferinenen was a female king. Many of these same researchers believed she served as co-regent. So, was she the same person as Nefertiti? There are inscriptions, at least a few, that imply she was the same as this king, and the primary reason she is considered as the most possible candidate for this ruler is the prominent role she played in her husband's rule really an unprecedented role. If the ruler was a woman, Nefertiti was the most prominent Egyptian woman of the day, so assuming she was alive, she is the natural candidate. Which gets me back to the co-regency stele, but keep in mind, it's not in great shape. What we do know is that it was originally carved with Nefertiti's name, but at some later point, Nefer for Eninen replaced her name on it. 
Also on the stele is a picture of the royal family, and this drawing was not altered, which would seem to indicate that the people in the drawing remained the same, so maybe just a name change, again. There is an older theory that Nefertiti died around Akhenaten's twelfth year, as she tended to disappear from most royal depictions, but there is also an inscription from four years later that mentions she is still alive. The overall consensus is that she was alive at the time of Akhenaten's death. There is another, lesser candidate for Neferinenen, and that is Marantaten. If Smeeker was a man, it's been proposed that his wife was Marantaten. The evidence of her as the ruler is far more scant than that of Nefertiti. And all of this confusion and general lack of knowledge can be boiled down to the cleansing of royal records following Akhenaten's failed religious reforms and a quick succession of rulers, not to forget ever-changing names. So maybe Nefertiti, maybe Marantaten, maybe someone else. So little is known that it's nearly impossible to state anything as fact. About all that is really accepted is that this ruler was a woman and a different person from Sminker, but it's time to move on. Which gets me to one of the most well-known pharaohs of all, and that is King Tutankhamun. He's mostly known for his tomb and the story of its discovery, which I'll get to in a bit. King Tutankhamun didn't start out with that name, a trend that's quickly becoming the norm of the period. His original name was Tutankhaten, which translates to the living image of Aten. He was the son of Akhenaten, and his mother was one of Akhenaten's sisters, or maybe a cousin. He took the throne in 1333 BC, when he was around nine years old. He would marry his half-sister, and have two stillborn daughters, with the mummies of both daughters having been found in his tomb complex. Since he took the throne while still a child, his advisors wielded great power, and it appears that neither his mother or his stepmother, Nefertiti, acted as regent for the young king, at least according to some. Instead, a general and vizier took on the role. In his third year, so, still a kid, and with his advisors running the show, Tukenhaten reversed several changes made during his father's reign. First, he ceased the worship of the god Aten and restored the god Amun to supremacy. The prohibition of the cult of Amun was lifted, and traditional privileges were restored to its priesthood. Also, the capital was moved back to Thebes, and the city of Akhenaten was abandoned. And, it was at this time that he changed his name to Tukenhamen, which means the living image of a moon, signaling the restoration of a moon as the supreme deity, coinciding with the re-elevation of a moon, and as a signal of his serious intent, Tut began building projects, many at Karnak in Thebes. It was here that he dedicated a temple to a moon. Also, numerous monuments were erected. This would be his life's work, as even the door to his tomb declared that Tut had spent his life in fashioning the images of the gods. He reinstated long-standing traditional festivals and celebrations including those related to the Apis Bull, 
it's thought that he was motivated to do this so their pantheon of gods would once again bless their land. In fact, a stele from his reign reads, The temples of the gods and goddesses were in ruins. Their shrines were deserted and overgrown. Their sanctuaries were as non-existent, and their courts were used as roads. The gods turned their backs upon this land. If anyone made a prayer to a god for advice, he would never respond. End quote. Pretty weighty stuff. He had a reason to want to return to the previous prosperity. The empire was struggling economically and was politically unstable following the reign of Akhenaten. Relations with other kingdoms had been neglected, and Tut worked to restore them, specifically with the Mitanni. On this front, he may have been successful, at least considering the many gifts from various foreign rulers found in his tomb. But not everything internationally was hunky-dory. He did fight the Nubians, again, and was successful, again. There are also skirmishes with various Middle Eastern territories. These too were indicated from tomb artifacts, pieces that included body armor and other items typically associated with a military campaign. But, to be clear, most likely he did not lead or even participate in these. Then again, a few Egyptologists speculate he did lead troops into battle. Those that side on the no-battle-experience side speculate that it would have been due to his poor physical health. Much of this can be discerned from his mummy. Tukhanaman was a rather skinny lad, but tall for the era, at just under 6 feet or 180 centimeters. Like the other rulers descended from Thutmose, he had large front incisors and an overbite. He also had a slightly cleft palate that today could have been easily repaired, but for him was a lifelong affliction. His spine exhibited symptoms of a slight case of scoliosis, and it was clear that he suffered from what is known as clipofuel syndrome. This genetic affliction is when at least two cervical vertebrae fuse together. And in this case, his case was anything but mild, as all seven vertebrae in his neck were completely fused together, so severe that he would have been incapable of any type of neck movement. His left foot was severely deformed, thought to have been brought on by deteriorating bone tissue. It was so severe that he needed a cane to walk. And this theory is supported by the numerous canes found in his tomb. And that wasn't his only pedal problem. He also had flat feet. DNA tests revealed that he most likely suffered from malaria. In fact, currently, he is the oldest known person found afflicted with the disease. And he probably didn't have a mild case, as the DNA from various different strains were found in his mummy. The malaria would have certainly weakened his immune system and possibly led to his foot disorder. CAT scan images uncovered congenital flaws, which are more commonly found in the children of closely related parents. This is because siblings are more likely to pass on twin copies of harmful genes, which is the primary reason why such offspring more commonly show genetic defects. And this was the case with Tut too. DNA testing of most of the mummies at Thebes have revealed and confirmed many things. 
First, Tut was the grandson of Amenhotep, and the son of the mummy believed to be that of Akhenaten. His mother was his father's sister, giving rise to many of the genetic abnormalities found. Other speculated diseases and afflictions include Marfan syndrome, Wilson-Turner X-linked mental retardation syndrome, Froehlich syndrome, Kleinfelter syndrome, androgen insensitivity syndrome, and temporal lobe epilepsy, among many others. And if you'll recall the last episode, many of these have been proposed in his ancestors. But not every medical archaeologist agrees with all of the diagnoses. But it should be clear that he was a sickly young man. Taking all of this into consideration, what could have led to his death at the particularly young age of 18? The answer to that question is hampered by the fact that there are no surviving records of his last days. As such, there's been a great deal of debate concerning the cause, a debate that isn't helped by the multiple choice of afflictions. Evidence that suggests his burial was hurried has been uncovered, so hurried that the paint may not have been dry on his tomb, literally still wet, leading to brown splotches. There has been speculation that he was assassinated, but with advancing medical techniques, that theory has fallen out of favor. Gaining in favor is that his death was accidental. A 2005 CT scan showed that he suffered a compound leg fracture shortly before his death. And as a reminder, a compound fracture is one where the bone pierces the skin and is exposed. Whatever you do, do not search for one in Google Images. Just think of what happens when Lawrence Taylor hits Joe Theismann at full speed. In our modern Western world, rich with emergency care and antibiotics, such an injury remains very serious. At that time, it was nearly always a death sentence, and bacteria does not care if one has royal bloodlines. Tut's leg may have become so badly infected that it killed him. Of course, the immune system weakening malaria did not help, but most likely, had he been in perfect health, he would have had a difficult time surviving. Which leads to the question, how did he get such a gruesome injury? His mummy was examined in what's been dubbed as a virtual autopsy. It revealed a pattern of injuries on one side of his body. Then, people who make a living as car crash investigators created various computer simulations of chariot accidents. From this, when his injuries were compared to the trauma seen in car accidents of a similar speed, the conclusion was reached that he likely died in a chariot crash, maybe one where a chariot ran into him while he was on his knees shattering his ribs and pelvis. He succumbed shortly afterwards. It's believed that this may have occurred while leading a military expedition, potentially in Syria. But there was something else that needed an explanation, and that was how his body became burnt, as that was the condition it was found in. The current theory is that it spontaneously combusted after being sealed in its coffin, it's thought that embalming oils combined with oxygen and linen and caused a chemical reaction, creating temperatures of more than 400 degrees Fahrenheit. 
which is greater than 200 degrees Celsius, which isn't entirely surprising. After all, even a bale of wet hay can spontaneously combust. With his death, and considering that his only two children, at least the only ones that we know of, anyway, these two children were stillborn, so he had no heirs, and with that, that royal family came to an end. The 18th dynasty would last through the next ruler, I, who was Tut's granduncle and grandfather-in-law. I'll cover him next week. But before signing off, I need to cover the uncovering of Tut's tomb. In 1922, after seven years of searching, English archaeologist George Herbert uncovered the nearly intact tomb. As you would suspect, in the Valley of the Kings. It was, and remains to this day, the most complete and intact ancient Egyptian royal tomb ever found. The sensational discovery renewed a long worldwide interest in ancient Egypt. Tutankhamun was interred in a tomb that was oddly small considering his status as pharaoh. This may have been due to his death occurring unexpectedly, before the completion of a grander royal tomb, so that his mummy was buried in a tomb initially intended for someone else. This would have been necessary to preserve the observance of the customary 70 days between death and burial. And if he died in a far-off land like Syria, the time to transport his body would have consumed many of those days. And his mummy remains in the tomb to this day, albeit now in a climate-controlled glass observation box. His tomb was robbed at least twice throughout the millennia, both probably in the year following interment, and it appears that the tomb was restored following both incursions, and then the tomb was lost, possibly before the 20th dynasty, as it was spared the systematic dismantling of the Valley of Kings tombs that occurred in that period. The tomb yielded over 5,000 items, including a solid gold coffin, face mask, thrones, archery bows, trumpets, a lotus chalice, food, wine, sandals, and fresh linen underwear, of course. So many items were found that their cataloging took 10 years. One of the more curious items was a dagger whose blade was possibly iron sourced from a meteorite. Ancient aliens, anyone? All of these items, and the completeness of his tomb, has led Tut to be one of the most well-known of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs, which is quite ironic considering that his reign was short, and after he died, the new leaders set out on a path to erase the memories of all pharaohs from the period. But it isn't all that it may seem. Apparently, nearly 80% of Tut's burial equipment originated from the female pharaoh Neferferienin's funerary items. This included his famous gold mask, royal jewelry, a middle coffin, several of the gilded shrine panels, along with boxes and chests. This suggests that Neferienin, who could have been Nefertiti, could also have been deposed as part of a power struggle. And if she was deposed, she may not have received a royal burial. When this is combined with his need for a speedy burial, it may have led to the repurposing of her funerary goods. 
Finally, no mention of his tomb would be complete without at least a passing reference to its rumored curse. Beginning almost immediately after its discovery, sensationalized stories appeared in the media concerning the tragic fate met by those who had entered the tomb. Most well known is George Herbert, the financier of the research, who fell to blood poisoning related to a mosquito bite, all within a year of entering the tomb. But that's just one person. A later study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, 8 died during the next 12 years, a rate that is not terribly surprising. Howard Carter, the researcher who found the tomb, lived another 17 years and was 64 when he met his ultimate fate, from lymphoma. The longest-lived survivors from the original party included Lady Evelyn Herbert, who was George Herbert's daughter and who lived 57 years after the opening, dying in 1980. An American archaeologist, John Kinnaman, died in 1961, 39 years after entering the tomb. So, like many things, the curse cannot survive statistical examination. And with that, I'll wrap up this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, I, and begin the 19th dynasty. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.